Again, free thinkers, welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Hope everybody is doing well and had a great weekend. Hey, thanks again for joining us, guys. Today, we had the pleasure of talking to Joel Valenzuela. The Free Thought Project's history with Joel actually goes way back, as Matt explained in the intro of our podcast. He was one of our first writers. But since then, Joel has evolved into a full-fledged crypto expert, and as you will hear, he had an answer for every single one of our questions, some of which may be a little too in the weeds for our audience, as the saying goes. However, I know we have a lot of very smart people listening to this podcast, and hopefully you guys find some value here. Now, Joel is also an activist, a podcast host, and even wrote for the crypto news website Cointelegraph for over five years. This important conversation touched on quite a few topics regarding the crypto space, including living life exclusively off of cryptocurrencies, the status of NFTs, the power of decentralized exchanges, BlackRock and their role in Bitcoin, CBDCs, and the Bitcoin economy in El Salvador. Now, I don't really think we could have stuffed more into this podcast, to be honest, guys. So grab yourself an iced tea, open up your ears, and prepare yourself to enter the fascinating world of cryptocurrency with a couple Bitcoin nerds interviewing the one and only Joel Valenzuela. Hello, listeners. Uh, today, we're thrilled to welcome an old friend to the Free Thought Project, Joel Valenzuela. Joel isn't just any guest. He's uh, someone whose journey has been closely intertwined, at least in the beginning formative years of the Free Thought Project. Uh, back in November of 2013, he penned one of the first articles basically ever for the Free Thought Project. It was called It's Time to Imagine a Post-Police World. This marked basically the start of a, a series of thought-provoking contributions that Joel has done for us that spanned several years until around 2018, which at that point, we actually started writing about Joel. He became a, a story himself, particularly during the heyday of, of Dash uh, cryptocurrency, uh, which we covered extensively at the time. Uh, we actually were sponsored by Dash for a brief period. Uh, I had the pleasure of joining him on the Dash Force News Show back then, and um, we've we've had this long history up until 2019 when we got censored off the face of the planet. But anyway, Joel's foray into cryptocurrency isn't just theoretical. This guy's been living off of cryptocurrency since 2015. Uh, he's basically pioneered a lifestyle that you know many have found both inspiring and revolutionary. He's used Dash mostly, um, if I'm not mistaken, for daily transactions and basically buying everything like. This dude is 
so in depth or in, in involved in the cryptocurrency world that actually CNN did a story on them and in the town of uh, Portsmouth, I think, uh, New Hampshire, back in the day. Pretty amazing that CNN actually covered cryptocurrency at all, but uh, they did a five minute segment on it. It was pretty awesome. We actually covered that story on the Free Thought Project. You know, with the crypto market currently experiencing some pretty massive growth and uh, Bitcoin recently surpassing the $50,000 mark, um, Joel's insights are more relevant now than ever. So, Joel, welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast. As someone who's been immersed in the crypto world, both personally and professionally, and uh, considering the broader implications of your work, um, I'm curious, do you still exclusively deal in dash for your transactions also you know what what initially drew you into this world of cryptocurrency and how do you view the current state of this market yeah well so first off hey thanks for having me back it's it's great to see the same kind of faces and people involved in this long struggle for liberty for a long period of time it's i've seen a lot of people burn out over the years and it's great to see a lot of us are still at it uh but so yeah to answer the first question about um, it is mostly Dash for payments and has been since the end of 2016 about. Of course, I, you know, I am not what you would call a maximalist of any kind. I use whatever works for any purpose. And, you know, I've used Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, Zcash, Monero, and Nano even, you name it, whatever works. But for the most part, for the actual like digital cash purposes, uh, Dash is pretty unparalleled, at least in, in my life and circumstances. And um, of course, I do use other uh, blockchain-based projects for other purposes. Um, when the library uh, network was still, when before the whole SEC issue with, with that, I published a whole lot onto the Odyssey platform, which uses the library blockchain and still do. And um, obviously, and it's I'm also a very big fan these days of what are the cross-chain cross -chain automated market maker decentralized exchange protocols, which is a lot of stuff to basically say decentralized <laughs> trade protocols. And um, like ThorChain is one that's very popular. And then the Maya protocol is another one, Chainflip, and possibly Sarydex in the near-ish future. So yeah, it's, sorry if that was a big mouthful, but yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting space right now. No, that almost sounded like a foreign language there for a second. And I'm, I'm sure uh, some of the people who aren't familiar with this space are probably going to be rewinding a, a few times just to catch everything you just said. And um, that's actually, you know, right off the bat, something I wanted to talk about, because right around the time I released my book um, in, in September, uh, Three Ways to Prepare for CBDCs, you actually had like a really powerful tweet thread explaining to people like the best practices of using cryptocurrencies. And of course, like my summarization in my book was like nowhere is near comprehensive. And you actually had me face palming, wishing I had like a little more of a, like a robust explanation while you explained it, because I think it's incredibly important to use decentralized exchanges such as like ThorChain and basic swap decks, like you were saying. And of course, I was like directing people to Coinbase, which, you know, maybe is the best for like some noobs or whatever. But, you know, it has plenty of issues, as do most major exchanges these days with you know, they seem to be working with federal regulators. So obviously, you know, it's a huge red flag. But do you think you could go a little bit more into depth, like explaining why these decentralized exchanges are the best route for people and like what the real difference is between the centralized and decentralized exchanges? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, first, I have to explain 
I guess, the limitation of decentralized exchanges. In order to be decentralized, everything involved has to be decentralized and permissionless, which means if it's not that good for getting from dollars or euros or whatever currency into cryptocurrency. There, there are ways you could do that in from decentralized platforms, but that's always going to be a friction point because your bank account is not permissionless. You know, it's and you know fiat currency isn't, and you're talking digital, um, digital decentralized currency. So if you have paper money and you try to stick it into your USB port to kind of do, it's not going to work that way, right? So that's the one big caveat to that. Uh, but as far as a lot of these. Um, we're talking about decentralized money, right? And decentralized money needs decentralized finance. Uh, if you think about the way people use legacy money, they don't just have, I mean, some people I know do, just have a stack of cash and that's all they do. Now they use financial services. They use not only um, payment facilitators, but they have savings accounts. They do investment portfolios. They do Forex exchanges when they travel. They do all kinds of different things. And all that stuff... Um, up until very recently, the corollary to crypto was all centralized and bank-like, where uh, you'd have an exchange like uh, Binance or Coinbase or Kraken or something like that, where you'd have your decentralized money and you'd put it on that platform and it would be basically like a bank or something else and with all the same drawbacks for swapping assets from here to there, et cetera, et cetera. And so decentralized exchanges have existed for a little while, they're starting to get really good these days, though. So you mentioned before basic swap decks. I'm a big fan of that one. Um, and then there's uh, there's quite a few others like the Komodo decks and BISC and things like that. A lot of these things tend to be what they call like an atomic decks, which basically means I have a cryptocurrency and I want to trade it for another one. I set whatever price I want, see if there's someone else out there who has the exact same thing I want for the price I want and wants to do the trade and then you kind of do it. And it tends to be a lot, you know, clunkier. Maybe it's like if you have a, some of them are integrating order books and things like that for, you know, a little bit smoother experience, but it's still much more of a, you know, trying to buy something off of Craigslist kind of experience where you're looking through Craigslist or Facebook marketplace or whatever. And you're saying, Oh, I want, I want to buy, you know, a big stack of firewood for the winter. And then, Maybe someone has it, maybe they don't, maybe they have a different price. It's a much more DIY kind of experience. What's happened recently, relatively, um, ever since um, Ethereum, I mean, it, it kind of became popular with Ethereum's Uniswap, um, was the Automated Market Maker Decentralized Exchange, or the AMM DEX, as they call them. Um, but it's really kicked into high gear with the, this protocol called ThorChain, which Basically, it it operates like if for people who are really old school with crypto will remember Shapeshift, the original Shapeshift company that just had a quick little widget where you could say, I want to swap this for that. And then just like a vending machine, you stick your coins in, you get the other thing out like automatically. And that experience, though, was provided by a centralized company with centralized infrastructure and ended up getting attacked by the regulators and they shut that down. But ThorChain and the Maya protocol and some of the in chain flip and some of these other AMM DEX protocols basically automate the whole thing. So you chuck, say, Bitcoin into a pool, 
and then you just get dash out and it's not oh i need to see if someone else is selling the exact same amount for the exact same price or anything it's just all kind of done with an automated the market making is automated and so these things really give some interesting applications where now you can kind of flow between these kind of different cryptocurrencies you know if you have your entire savings in bitcoin for example but you know the fees are expensive and it's it's really hard to use it in a trust minimized way for payments and you're like i, I could use some dash well you go to a uh, a one of these dex front ends and then just click a button and you get a bag of dash now and now you can use that to spend so that's something that's definitely really taking off and i'm, I'm really excited to see that space really explode in the last couple of years yeah that's cool man like the <clears throat> these decentralized exchanges seem like to have multiple options for this type of uh of trading and and i guess acquiring the, the proper currency for something that you buy right but like i'm sure our listeners are wondering you know like in this world that's still largely dominated by by traditional currencies right um I guess relying on exclusively on cryptocurrency pro presents probably a pretty practical challenge, right? Um, I know not for you. You live in a town where a lot of people accept it, and um, or most everybody, um, I'm assuming. But for like, you know, some simple day to day transactions, for example, like sometimes I go to my kids' sports games and it's cash only to get in, right? Like if I tried to pay them in Dash, they'd like look at me sideways, right? Can you share some insights into the like into any kind of difficulties that you've that you've encountered, like while you, since 2015, you've been since you've been living off the off cryptocurrencies and such? Yeah, well, first for just the big picture. Uh, it's gotten a lot easier with each following year, which it should, right? But a lot of, there's not a lot of um, visibility on that. Where it has, it's gotten easier because of certain services making, uh, facilitating this kind of experience, like cash app, where it's oh, sorry. stuff like that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll get into that in just a second. Um, where it has, and you know, the, the the negative, I guess, is the purely peer to peer element of it has you know obviously it's still there obviously it's still very doable but the purely peer-to-peer -peer element has not has maybe receded a bit where in let's just say the, the heyday of the 2017 18 19 up to 2020 maybe uh, a whole lot of projects were posting videos images of oh look at this little merchant here he takes it oh look at that one there and then there's like maps that have all these listings of like the mom and pop shop adoption I think has gone down a little bit and that's a little unfortunate and that's something I'm going to hopefully focus on. But for the actual person trying to live off of crypto, it's a lot easier because there's a few services that kind of um, help with this. So um, I'm just going to name a few approaches. So the first one, uh, there's a company called BitRefill, which has been in the space for a long time. And they do have a few competitors. What is it? Coin Cards, Coinsbee, um, you know, eGifter. There's a few of these that are kind of competitors. But basically, BitRefill is an on-demand seller of gift cards for cryptocurrency. And they also do mobile top-ups and do have other things like that. But basically, uh, if you want to go to, let's just say, you buy something off of Amazon. You go to the Amazon, you get ready to check out. Then you just open a new tab, go to BitRefill and buy an Amazon gift card with crypto for the exact amount you need to finish the order, plug it in, and you're good. And so Amazon covered, right? You go to 
oh, I want to go to Dunkin' Donuts. You can buy a Dunkin' Donuts gift card for exactly the same amount as you need. And then there you go at the checkout. It works fast enough that you can kind of do this. I have done this in line at Chipotle before where I was like, okay, this is how much my burrito is. And I bought a gift card for the exact amount. And then they just scanned it for my phone on the way out. And then there you go. So these services like BitRefill have become a lot more common, a lot more robust and have a much bigger selection. And so for just everyday little purchases like that, uh, it's gotten a whole lot better. Uh, one thing that's, um, maybe I'll just stop there <laughs> for just a second before I just run on and talk about more stuff. <laughs> no, this is interesting, man. <laughs> yeah, finish that thought. I, I was yeah. into it as well. Yeah, so the other thing then, right, which uh, this has been a, something that has been doable in a lot of the year, a lot of the world for many years, but has been a tricky point in the US up until the last couple of years. And I don't think a lot of people really saw this change, but paying your bills. So there's a, the financial systems of other countries, tend, the legacy financial systems, I should be specific, uh, tend to be less annoying than in the US. The US is a lot of you know, financial restrictions compared to a lot of things. And in fact, if you look at a lot of crypto services that are have like geofencing that just that a lot of times they're like, you can use this service if you're not a resident of North Korea, Iran, like Belarus and like the US. It's like the US is always listed amongst all these like despotic nations as far as like, oh, your customers can't touch it. So for the longest time, you've been able to use bill pay solutions in Europe, in Australia, in Canada and places like that. Um, swap in, like swapping with it without the G is one that works in the, most of the world pretty well. Um, um, I can't remember the Canadian one. Living Room of Satoshi is one that's in Australia, etc. And these services, you can just enter your bill net, your bill information for your electricity, water, whatever it is, and then just hit pay and then you pay with crypto and it works. This has not been the case in the U.S. for the very for the longest time, until very recently. Um, a company that I'm a very big fan of because they make a lot of people's lives easier, called Spritz Finance. Spritz like an Aperol Spritz, the the fun drink. Uh, Spritz lets you pay all your bills in the U.S. Your mortgage, your electricity, your everything with crypto. And what I'm a big fan of that platform for is you don't need to actually. Um, part with your money to put it on a custodial platform and then pay. You could just pay right from, for example, your hardware wallet or whatever. Basically, it's like digital cash, right? You can just hold all your own money and then just pay your utility bills. And just through this one service, I think that you can reliably live on crypto in the US today without really learning too much. Wow, that's a, a huge step in the right direction. And hopefully this inspires more people over the course of time to, yeah, start to begin to use, you know, this this technology and what its original form once was or intended to be anyway, which was the peer-to-peer -peer economy. Um, so it, it's, it's certainly great to see that there is some expansion and growth and evolution happening. And uh, I know you had mentioned that the peer-to-peer the -peer had slowed down a little bit, um, but I also wanted to talk about like some of the de-evolution of some of the crypto space. And I don't know if you're necessarily an expert on this topic I want to bring up here, but I just wanted to kind of get your take on it briefly because it's something we don't really hear about anymore. 
Uh, back in 2021, we saw this surgence in what are called NFTs, these non-fungible tokens. They were usually like images, digital playing cards. Um, they were once sold at these like exorbitant prices, right? Like they <laughs> they were going for crazy amounts of money, but they're rarely talked about anymore. Um, back in the first quarter of 2022, the market for NFTs was an estimated 12.6 billion. And now in the third quarter, well, I guess we're now in 2024, uh, but in the, the third quarter of 2023, when I pulled up these stats, uh, it's it's down to 1.39 billion. So, do you have like any insight? Like, what happened to NFTs? Did you invest in any? And is the market basically dead? Yeah. So, no, I did not invest in any. I have minted some of my own uh, because I didn't get NFTs at first, and then I understood the value, and then I decided to start playing around with them to really understand because I don't think you can understand just from reading and listening to things. You need to, to touch sure. the stuff. Uh, I don't know exactly where the NFT market stands today, but I think it's extremely underestimated because uh, Solana, for example, is on fire these days because of NFTs. And it's the primary use case currently, or the, the primary, it, it has been for periods this year and last year, for the Bitcoin blockchain, BTC, with the whole ordinals thing. And of course, that this is getting super into the weeds of like what I would almost call crypto politics, but there's a lot of um, a lot of stuff going on with um, the Bitcoin blockchain being used to create NFTs. And I think that the the bubble was just kind of a bubble about it's a very new tech. It's people did never knew they could do this before they created something Ooh, shiny coin look at the little monkey guy and then they just went crazy for it and then eventually they realized oh this is literally just we're just selling a digital trading card that just has a picture on it it's like a one of whatever series and that's all it is and there's only so much value for that i mean physical trading cards and collectibles are still all over the place right. but they're not like it to my knowledge, they're not such a titanic industry as like the NFT industry tried to get to. So I think it's just sort of a lull before the next storm because um, the NFT premise is super valuable. I would think it's just about as valuable as a cryptocurrency as a whole because it's basically digital property. And so when we talked about earlier about the whole decentralized exchange thing, part of the thing that makes decentralized exchanges so valuable is that you can just swap like if i want to try trade one crypto token for another whether through an atomic swap or whether through one of these amm dexes i was talking about before whatever it is you could basically click a button and then we exchange assets without a trusted intermediary without any friction just like that now as i mentioned the challenge with getting out of the fiat currency system in, into the crypto world in a decentralized way is Okay, well, then now you have to like list, oh, I will buy for cash on some platform. And you have to meet up with someone and then here you go, cash for this. And maybe release from an escrow. To, there's a bunch of friction because of the the physical legacy world. And so the same thing goes with um, decentralized trade. Now, obviously, there was um, sites such as, you know, the Silk Road way back in the day. And then more, re more recently, but still in the past, is Open Bazaar which was a completely decentralized marketplace for physical goods. The problem is there's just so much friction between like, oh, I'm going to list on this decentralized platform. I'm going to list, you know, I'm going to sell my camping equipment or whatever. 
And then there's just so much that has to be offline. Like, okay, now you need an arbiter to like hold the funds in escrow and then do a reputation system and just all this stuff. Um, with digital goods, like an NFT marketplace, all you got to do is you just click a button and then the trade's done. Completely settled. The problem is the NFT has largely been a, uh, what can I say, a, uh, a token of something. It's a largely just been a collectible. It hasn't had a lot of real utility. Now, I started to experiment with NFTs because I wanted to experiment with the utility. So for premium subscribers to my podcast, I give them, you know, they can get an NFT and then the NFT gets them into a Discord server where there's a little bot that checks if you own the NFT and then you can get in and then there you go. And if they sell the NFT, then they get kicked out and it just checks that. It's kind of like a, a, a digital decentralized ticket that can kind of be traded along. So if someone wants to be a subscriber and then eventually they just don't like my podcast anymore, they can sell that to someone else without me knowing, without me giving credentials to a new person. And then a new person just pops into my Discord and one day I'm like, hey, who, how, who are you? How'd you get here? It's because they own this token. And that's just a very kind of lower level. But what we can imagine is um, why couldn't property rights like digital property rights like legal rights but also actual access keys be nfts so imagine this you got a car like you know imagine a tesla style car like a, a modern car like that and the tesla already has you know you can open it with your phone or whatever but imagine the the property the actual title to that vehicle is in nft form and every single repair or everything else gets signed by different auto mechanic shops or whatever and gets updated. So you actually have on the property of the digital car title, you actually have the, the repair history, et cetera. And then instead of, you know, having to go to an auto dealership, you go to an NFT marketplace and here's all the car titles. And then you just, Oh, this one looks good. I, it's all verified, you know, with all these, auto repair shops and everything. I know the condition. I know the ownership. I just hit buy. The owner doesn't need to know who bought it. It just auto transfers. And then I can just run over to where the vehicle is and use that same thing to open the door and leave. I don't have to trust a person at all in this entire transaction. Of course, there's a lot of limitations with the physical parts of things like, okay, well, what about this, this auto repair shop? you know, it has a good reputation, but they screwed up here and there's actually a deflated tire or whatever. Or there's also like, where's the car being stored? You know, you guys still have to go there in person. But these are kind of some ways you can imagine as we turn a lot of these goods, these digital goods, as long when we migrate this to the this space, then NFTs will become super valuable. Now it's just digital property. And once it's in this decentralized digital realm, you can trade free trade is just permissionless free trade is just there. So over the next few years, I really expect this space to boom as more and more things of real permanent real world value start to migrate to that kind of uh, function. Dude, that was uh, one of the best explanations of NFTs I've, I've ever heard. And he, he did a, a, a fantastic job of that. Uh, did I mention monkeys? Yeah. They can have a monkey. <laughs> Man, so there's one other thing that we that uh, I wanted to ask you about NFTs as well. It's a, it's a tweet I saw you put out. This was years ago, so I couldn't possibly recall the corporation or branding that was using the NFT. 
but you touched on this like this really intriguing concept of businesses utilizing nfts for like branding self-promotion kind of defining their identity in this digital space would could you and, unless i'm fucking way off and i dream this shit but <laughs> if i'm not could you elaborate on how you see like nfts transforming or helping the way businesses present themselves in the market or and like what potential you believe this kind of has for creators and consumers alike yeah i'm not i mean uh, you, you mean, know is it, super, does, does that sound familiar i, I might i might be completely spaced it sounds it, but... like some stuff i would have talked about i'm not exactly sure okay. the 100 percent the context but yeah i could definitely talk about some applications for business um one thing's for sure is like a digital punch card or something like instead of your your 10th coffee is free or whatever that can be an nft it's an easy thing you can rack up points on on the app and they can't you know you can kind of show that and you can also like resell it to other users you can do whatever else and it's just a kind of a fun way of getting involved there uh the good thing is when you have a digital collectible like that uh it's a lot easier for companies to do that without having to go into like physical merch so it's like oh you if you buy, you know, limited release NFT, right? So limited release, Starbucks comes out with a new drink and the first hundred people who buy the drink get this special NFT. And some point at a later date, they, in, they throw a party that only these NFT holders can get into, for example. There's just a lot of interesting things you can do with that sort of a thing. Um, what I'd definitely like is what... I used to work in the nonprofit space before, and I think there's a lot of nonprofit um, applications for this where you, know, you want to fundraise and a lot of times just, hey, give us money is you definitely want something to sweeten the deal. I have noticed in the past that um, if you offer like a commemorative little thing, like exclusive, like only our premium donors get these like special little cufflinks or whatever, people will increase their level of giving to meet that level to kind of get into that club and so it's easy to do with like an nft thing get people with a it, one day you will find people that will show you their nft gallery of every single year that they donated to for example the free thought project just every single year they're like oh i got the i got the 2025 26 27 28 and then i missed 2029 so i had to buy it from someone else who did and at a way higher price and i just just want to have the whole thing the whole collection to show that i've supported these guys from the beginning and then i'm sure you could provide special exclusive you know podcasts or hangouts or whatever else to people that that had that so that's definitely something that i think that a lot of businesses could take advantage of but definitely nonprofits as well when you were just explaining nfts and and i guess they're different applications it almost sounded like what I thought were smart contracts. And I, I don't, I think probably around the same time, like NFT came out, the NFTs came out, there was a bunch of excitement floating around about these different blockchain applications. Um, some of those were obviously NFTs, which we talked about smart contracts, DeFi, and I think more recently, DPIN. Of course, like I haven't really heard much about these things since like the 2021 era. Like, um, is there, is there some similarities there between like what NF NFTs are and like smart contracts? And what about this like DeFi stuff? Like, can you maybe get into that just briefly? Yeah, a smart contract is just a self-executing contract. And ever since Ethereum's existed, we've had 
what we today call smart contracts, although Bitcoin itself did have some scripting capabilities way in the past, and there have been a whole bunch of others. But basically, that's kind of the framework, the functionality that lets you do stuff like NFTs okay. in it, like a real way where we, the point about an NFT is like the transferability, right? The being able to transfer to people and then also update and edit. And that kind of needs, you need to sort of interact with the contract for that. So the smart contract is just that. DeFi is just code for, you know, it's a shortening of decentralized finance, yeah. which I was talking about the, the DEX world, the cross-chain uh, swaps is part of DeFi, but also um, part of it is like investment tools and like earning yield and stuff. And so kind of to circle back to that part of the discussion, um, if you can provide liquidity for this these de decentralized trading mechanisms, you get a part of, you know, trading fees and that. So to the end user, what it looks like is you just you earn yield on your stuff. You earn like a, a percentage, you earn like a savings account. And some of these um, platforms like ThorChain and the My Protocol have something called a function called savers, which basically if you deposit one Bitcoin in, you earn like 1% a year, 2%, whatever on that Bitcoin, in that Bitcoin, in denominated in it. And so you withdraw at the end of the year, you get that plus 1% or 2% or whatever it is. And so now we're talking about financial services that are, working in a decentralized way. Of course, you can also do, you know, all kinds of whatever derivative contracts, longing, shorting assets, whatever else. There's so many other things you could potentially do that go kind of deep into that. But that's, you know, DeFi and a lot of this, the deeper elements of DeFi do require smart contracts as a functionality to sort of run everything, to make everything work. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of that, I guess. That's a that's a great explanation. And yeah, I think it it does kind of align with, I guess, what I was thinking. It's it's perfect to have you on, though, to kind of clarify these things. So thank you for that. But I do feel like we're getting maybe a little too into the weeds, a little too much into the inside baseball of things for probably our general audience. But, you know, hopefully it's it's still useful and valuable to some people. But why don't we back up and zoom out just a little bit? I kind of have like a, a noob question here for you, because you know, I'm, I should probably admit, you know, I've been in the world of crypto since 2017, and I don't really have a great understanding of what BlackRock's involvement in Bitcoin ETFs are and what's happening right now. And it, it seems to be they're dominating the market as BlackRock, you know, seems to have a knack for doing, of course, and most of the time through their cronyism. Um, but I, I couldn't really tell you what's transpiring there. You know, I, I recently dug up an article that was published today by Crypto Slate on the topic, and the headline uh, more or less kind of solidified what I was just saying. You know, the head, headline was BlackRock and Fidelity lead as Bitcoin ETFs capture 340 million in a single day. So can you explain it to me like I have no experience with crypto? Like what's going on here? What does ETF stand for? And should we be worried that BlackRock is going to be dominating this digital landscape as well? Yeah. Um, basically, the financial system of the past has a lot of big players involved. And it's the same with the financial system of the future and the present, where sure, there might be different companies, and different people and decentralized protocols and all this kind of stuff involved. 
at some point when you see that there's money to be made, they're the old, same old players will try to get involved and they will get involved and they will have some sort of influence. And that's kind of, it sounds a little black pilly maybe, but it's, it's kind of just like the realism of all this awesome stuff we're doing when we create um, like a radically new and free system. Uh, we're definitely going to have an improvement. Of course, it doesn't mean that some of the old people aren't well, the old players aren't going to be represented just because if anyone can buy in, if anyone can use this stuff, sure. People that don't like freedom maybe will be involved as well. Um, it's, it's a very, so there's two sides of it in my experience. There's a, and don't worry about it side. And then, oh no, this is something we need to worry about. Um, the, I'll start with the, and don't worry about it part, which is, um, as a whole cryptocurrency and decentralized blockchain tech, um, will work no matter who's involved. And because people like me are able to live without using fiat currency today, and many more will be able to in the future, I think that's an absolute win. And as long as we fight for our our ability and our rights to continue to do that and increasingly do that, I think we're going to be okay. And the sort of dark side of things is some is Bitcoin and Ethereum, but specifically Bitcoin. I, let's just focus on Bitcoin for now because it, it's kind of the most obvious thing. Um, since 2016 or so, uh, Bitcoin for, again, this is, you know, hours long, the podcast we could do starting just right now, but, <laughs> but basically for whatever reason did not, uh, continue to be useful for everyday payments. Basically the transaction throughput of the network, just how many people can use it just was not increased mm -hmm. and remains like that to this day. So basically, uh, you have to use other things to transmit your Bitcoin. Kind of like imagine like digital gold, right? With real gold, you're not going to, if you want to pay your mortgage, you're not going to find wherever the office is, drive like a couple hours or more with this like nugget of bullion and just say, here you go. Like that's not how it works. The way it ended up working is you have gold deposited in a bank and you have like your gold or silver certificates, paper notes that are representative of that and use that to pay. And then course and that was the gold standard and then the gold standard we all know what happened with that and so bitcoin is becoming the same thing right now where it's becoming expensive for people who aren't institutions or large companies or things like that to actually use bitcoin everyone else is being pushed into this um, category of using things that use bitcoin and now you're starting to have you're starting to lose out on a lot of those main benefits. So, for example, the ETFs, which ETF is exchange traded fund. It's basically like if you want to basically what happens is a, a company buys up a bunch of the asset like Bitcoin and then just sells part of it to people, sells like part of the paper rates to it, I guess. And so, I mean, I'm being super this is where. People who actually understand what they're talking about here are going to be losing <laughs> at my dumb explanation, but I'm, I'm trying to be really dumb here on purpose. <laughs> so you. basically, if BlackRock buys a ton of Bitcoin, they can pay you know the that several hundred dollar, thousand dollar transaction fee to move it all into their vaults. And then they create ETF shares that then they sell to people, especially through like retirement accounts, like 401ks and stuff like that. And so you're like, I'm going to invest in Bitcoin. So you buy some of BlackRock's ETF. And so then now you own some Bitcoin. You have some, some exposure to the value of Bitcoin, but you don't actually have the right to the real stuff. 
And there's no way you could take your ETF and be like, you know what? I'm going to cash it in and get some real Bitcoin. No, it doesn't work like that at all. You're just buying that representative investment. And largely, we've seen a lot of the uh, exposure to Bitcoin go into this institutional kind of a way. Now, the challenge with that, other than there's two challenges. The first one is you're letting these large uh, companies, which may not have your best interests at heart, right? They're letting them dictate how you can and can't have exposure to these financial, these new financial uh, instruments like Bitcoin. And you give, you basically create another like choke point where if, you know, you're a bad person by deemed by the government and you have all your money in, you know, BlackRock and Bitwise and Fanec and other ETFs for Bitcoin, same as anything else, they can just confiscate it from you and just say, there's a bad guy, take away all his money. And so even though you're, oh, but I had Bitcoin, I thought that was, nope, doesn't matter. You didn't actually have it. You had it through these institutions. The other thing that's a challenge is the paper Bitcoin problem, which is you don't actually know if the ETF, the, 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 that's representative of a certain amount of Bitcoin that you have is actually backed by that amount of Bitcoin. Now, compared to gold, for example, it's a it's a big improvement because you can post an address on a blockchain, which I think Bitwise and some of these other ETF providers have done, where you say, look, this is all our Bitcoin. And you can actually see it. And anyone who runs a Bitcoin node can just look at the address and be like, I can verify from anywhere in the world that this is how much money is here. The challenge comes when, do you know how much they've sold to people now? It's like, okay, let's say they have a billion dollars in Bitcoin right here. Have they sold only a billion dollars worth of ETF shares? Why not two billion? Can you audit them and make sure that those numbers actually line up? Or are they selling stuff that isn't backed by digital gold anymore? And now you have like a fractional reserve kind of a thing. Now, well, it's only 20% backed. And then eventually you have the reinvention of the fiat system. It's just with... Um, some more clever tricks to have to get around the actual reality that you have to report. You you have to po post whatever you say. If you say, I have this much Bitcoin, and if you actually have to prove it, then that is actually provable. Whereas with gold, it's much harder to prove because you'd have to actually go to the vault where they say they have it. And you'd have to test it itself to make sure that all of it is actually gold. It's much more annoying than just running a node and checking it. But the point is, that's kind of the challenge with the whole BlackRock and other entities getting into the space is they're kind of capturing Bitcoin at this point where now they're the dealers of Bitcoin. They're the ones who can sell it to you. They're the ones who can dilute it by selling Bitcoin that doesn't actually exist. Although, as I mentioned, it's harder than it was for gold. And then they can also confiscate it. That doesn't mean you can't hold Bitcoin yourself and use it yourself without you know, without trusting it another intermediary, it just means that increasingly you're going to have to pay high fees because there's only room for tr seven transactions roughly per second for the entire Bitcoin network for the entire planet. And if um, if every second seven different institutions move their money around somewhere or reshuffle something, then that means they they could they do everything. There's no room for little mom and pop to then say, "Hey, I want to move." my little stash of digital gold from here to here. It's like, nope, can't do that. So that's the big challenge. And that's why I keep on pushing this 
live off of digital cash where you could touch your own private keys, but you, you touch the stuff yourself. Start doing that today because if you're waiting for institutions to give you that freedom, they just won't. It's fractional reserve crypto. <laughs> Absolutely. Not not yet, but I <laughs> yeah. wouldn't be surprised in the next uh, couple of years. I mean, sure. yeah. Speaking of speaking of bad guys, right? Um, centralized banks. You know, we have this like this looming specter of central bank digital currencies or CBDCs who Jason just wrote a book about. Um, and I'm pretty sure cryptocurrency is a big part of that book. So I want to get your input on that. Like, how do you see, um, you know, these not Bitcoin, I guess, uh, but other decentralized cryptocurrencies acting as as counterbalances to this globalist control <clears throat> over financial systems? You know, can like their inherent freedom, like really safeguard this, uh, uh, you know, like our individual autonomy? Or, or do you think that there's a chance that it, it could all be co-opted, outlawed and and put into a box? <clears throat> Yeah, I I think the chance of it all being co-opted, put into a box, is close to zero. It's very low. It is still possible. And, of course, there's very many degrees of how much control will there be and for how many people and in which jurisdictions. But the fact is we have this technology now, since 2009 roughly, that anyone in the world can basically use money without anyone else's permission, but not just use, but create. So I could, if, for example, I could create a cryptocurrency from scratch by the end of the day, probably. I mean, I can't code at all, but I could find someone and I could say, hey, I like this one, but copy and paste it. So we have another one <laughs> and then it's running. You're all running nodes and stuff like that. And it's all working. And so if you co-op, Bitcoin, then there's Ethereum. You, you co-opt Ethereum, there's Solana. You co-opt Solana, there's Tron. You co-opt Tron, there's Dash. You co-opt Dash, there's Bitcoin Cash. There's Monero. There's there's so many, and you can just create a new one on the spot. And so the fact that this technology is out there means it's sort of like file sharing, where after the file sharing era, you just could not reliably control the free flow of copyrighted works it's just gonna get out there right what you can do is you can say okay look if you if you play nice and listen to all these people through spotify instead and maybe pay for a subscription or otherwise have ads it's so much easier than like downloading BitTorrent and downloading this album and then if you're you don't have a vpn your internet service provider is going to yell at you or maybe the cops will visit you or whatever you know, it's just too much work but They've kind of given up on that eventuality of that being a thing. Same thing with encrypted messaging and other things like that. There's all kinds of permissionless open source stuff out there on the internet for everything. This is the way of money now. Money and finance is now in this domain. There's just no stopping it, I don't think. There's just no way to do that. Now, what we can do, what, what there is a risk of is practically speaking, running through too many of these centralized institutions to do these everyday things. And so, for example, um, co-opting development teams of some of the top cryptocurrencies could be a threat. Uh, making people do payments through these third-party apps. Like, for example, probably the most popular Bitcoin wallet today is something called Wallet of Satoshi, which uses the Lightning Network to route payments around. And 
it's a custodial app, meaning you you put your money in, they hold it for you. And so it's basically like a bank app, although they don't yet have ID requirements. However, because of this, they recently just shut out all U.S. users because the U.S. regulations got too hot and they're like, you know what, we're out. So that is a big concern if most of the country, let's just say, started using Bitcoin through some of these kinds of apps and then all of a sudden they get captured. It's like a honeypot almost. They get, you know, they get captured by all of a sudden they lose access to all their decentral, what they thought were decentralized payments. And the only way to get them back is to give their ID and do all this other kind of stuff. And so that kind of capture where, okay, you could still use the tech peer to peer, but the ways most people, the habits people have built are all about on things that can be co-opted. That's a threat. And that's something that I'm pushing against as well. Yeah. Well, a great explanation. And uh, I, I guess it's, you know, there's a lot to say about CBDCs. And of course, you know, I, I've, I wrote that book. I recently spoke at, um, I, I did a digital presentation for the Greater Reset Conference in Mexico. And, you know, I think the way that they could potentially usher in these CBDCs, it's kind of the part that scares me the most. Of course, you know, you're talking about all these various options. So hopefully there is never just one centralized currency. Um, and speaking of which, you know, I know El Salvador uh, has been a huge adopter of Bitcoin. And more recently, El Salvador's president, Bukele, recently uh, won his reelection with 85% of the votes, which kind of underscores the population's support for his leadership and I guess these unconventional policies, uh, including the adoption of Bitcoin as a legal tender, which happened in 2021. Um, obviously, that's made like El Salvador a target for criticism by um, people like the IMF, you know, but Bukele continues to forge on with these initiatives and to continue to promote this Bitcoin use. Uh, one of his visions and one of these initiatives was this idea of this uh, Bitcoin city, which would be powered by geothermal energy from the country's volcanoes. Um, I know we're getting low on time here and I, I still wanted to ask you that white, that white pill question, but like, do you know what the latest status is with this vision? And is there anything else you could share with us about this that kind of makes it unique to El Salvador's experience with, you know, adopting Bitcoin? Yeah, I, I'm not super up on all the different things that the government's doing there. Um, I do, I am friends with the guy who, I guess, like created their Bitcoin wallet that they're using in the country. Um, it's been a hard thing to talk about because I, I'm sort of 50-50 on this whole El Salvador thing. On the one hand, I'm very happy that a company is bucking the U.S. dollar and other uh, currencies like that and is embracing something that is run, is in theory like decentralized. And just the fact that there's a lot of you know, capital gains kind of tax gone away. There's a lot of things like that. I think it's good. I do think that, you know, having a digital gold as a reserve currency rather than whatever else is also good. The problem is I, I don't, there's a lot that I don't trust about it too. First of all, um, the transparency of the country buying Bitcoin or who chooses to do this, as far as I know, it's on the president's phone himself. He just has his like Coinbase account or whatever. He just like <laughs> blank check with the, with the people's money again government or, you know, taxpayer money just buys at will. And I have a lot of, um, I guess I'm wary of the man because 
he has sent troops into the legislature to force a vote that was not going his way before, which is not what you'd like to see. That doesn't happen in the U.S. even. I mean, as bad as the U.S. is, this doesn't really happen. And for that purpose, I think I would agree he's probably very popular for good reasons. I also don't necessarily trust the integrity of those elections either. I think sure. that if he weren't very popular, he'd probably still have gotten elected. You know, it's <laughs> there's a lot of like, yes and no. I'm a much bigger fan of what Javier Malay is doing in Argentina. Um, sure. Also, as from my understanding, and I have not done my research on this, so if I say something stupid, just understand that. I don't know if El Salvador's um, crypto freedom thing applies to all cryptocurrency. I think it's it's picking a winner in Bitcoin. Yeah. And whereas with, for example, Argentina and some other countries have been much more just free market on it, just like, yeah, use whatever you want. And uh, I know the the wallet by which all the the entire country uses it is basically like a bank. It's like a, an entire custodial service that only people who live in El Salvador can can use and people have lost money going in there and out and you know it's better than nothing but the El Salvador thing I think is is symbolically much more important than it is in practice and I think that it's also more of just like a good thing for El Salvador on the whole probably than it is a good thing for freedom in El Salvador it's more of just okay well, we're making money because we're investing in something that's not depreciating all the time. And, oh, look at all this foreign investment in startups and stuff we've lured in by, we've attracted, sorry, by, you know, offering favorable environments to build a business and stuff. And so on the whole, I think it's probably a good thing. It's just, as a freedom lover, I'm very skeptical <laughs> on how it's been implemented, you know? Sure, sure. No, and, and rightfully so. And uh, I appreciate your perspective on that. And we've talked about Javier Malay, I think probably like four out of the last six podcasts. So <laughs> we, we don't have to get into that one. But um, yeah, I do appreciate that. And, you know, Joel, we are near the end of the podcast. And uh, at the end of our podcast, we always try to talk about positive news, uplifting information and perspectives, and of course, solutions. So uh, as someone who's dedicated his life and career to cryptocurrency and all the potential that they hold, what message of hope or inspiration can you share with our audience to leave this conversation on a positive note? Oh, yeah, there's a lot. Um, I think we are we're at a better point in human history than I think we've ever been as far as we're more prosperous. We have more free agency as far as what we want to do. And obviously a lot of this is not structural. Like a lot of our legally enshrined rights are not what they used to be. But as far as like career choices, what you want to do with your life, how you want to look, how you want to dress, et cetera, we're at the freest spot of human history for most of the planet. And the most prosperous, et cetera, technologically advanced, all that good stuff. Um, we're running through some serious headwinds right now where you there's a lot of governments in the world that are sort of uniting to, to spy on us and steal our rights and things like that. But I do feel like once we get on the other side of that, we're going to be in a new golden age of prosperity for the human race that we've never even imagined before. I really believe that we're coming up on that soon. And uh, for example, um, the, you know, the U S is a great battleground for this kind of idea, but uh, gun rights have never been as strong as they have today in the U S there's been, so many states that have adopted constitutional carry over the last few decades, 
where now you don't need a permit to carry a gun concealed, despite all the mass shootings and other things like that going on to tr that kind of push things in the opposite direction. Um, school choice, where you know I was homeschooled, I was one of those weird kids, and now there's a plethora of different education freedom options, which basically claw back some of that money we're already throwing at the government for government schools and allowing you to do anything like homeschool, send to wherever. That's really on fire these days. I mean, uh, New Hampshire has an education freedom account system that I'm really a big fan of. Um, Arizona has a really good one, West Virginia, these kinds of programs that let people take back some of that government money and just be educated however they see fit. Those are growing everywhere. Obviously, I'm a big fan of decentralized tech. That stuff's going well. Um, I'm not super up on the entire entirety of the the border crisis thingy going on in Texas or was going on in Texas, but it is crazy that a, a big chunk of the United States just said, hey, federal government, no, and we're sending troops. What are you going to do about it? And I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy to see something like that at that level happen. I mean, obviously, you mentioned Millie. I have to give Millie lip service at least to say... Um, the fact that basically a radical, crazy libertarian guy gets to be the president of a country, of a major country, and gets to actually enact a lot of these reforms immediately is very, I guess, white pilly there. And I think that we're going to see a lot more leaders like that, but also we're going to see e existing leaders starting to get a little bit of FOMO, that fear of missing out, and try to do things that make themselves seem like that as it becomes popular. Um, I think that because of communication, the world has never been smaller as far as you could be a friend with anyone, anywhere else. You can the you have immense knowledge at your fingertips at all times. You don't have to worry about trusting experts. You can do your own research on how to do things. You can build a house from scratch, having zero experience, just looking at stuff on, you know, on social media and things like that. And uh, you can, they basically were coming into like limitless possibilities for self-sovereign living. And of course, the biggest part of that is I remember in 2012, not too long ago, right? 12 years ago, um, trying to get a hold of one of Peter Schiff's gold-backed debit cards because I was just trying to escape fiat currency somehow. And fast forward today, where for all, you know eight years now I've been living not on government on non-governmental money, and it's getting easier. And I know a lot of people who are starting to do the same. I'm, you know, starting to lose track. I used to know all the people that did. Now I don't even. And so it's super easy. I'll say super easy might be a little bit of an oversell, but it's very doable to completely extricate yourself from the uh, fiat currency financial system today, from the government education system, and from numerous other things, uh, no, numerous other centers of control. And you can get a straight dose of the truth from the Free Thought Project. And if that's not the <laughs> future, I don't know what is. <laughs> right on, man. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Um, no one here listening to this show will have heard of that, so I thought I'd give you guys a shout out. You just kind of plugged two of well, one past guest and one future guest. You talked about the border, and I'm excited. We're having a uh, guest, Patrick Smith, on next week to talk about the border and dissect the complexities about that. Man, like there's a there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm conflicted on, and um, it's going to be a, a fun one. But uh, and then Peter Schiff, you know, I bet you're glad you didn't get that gold debit card, right? 
<laughs> yeah, it might have delayed. It might have delayed my my trip, but it's still <laughs> right. it's still in principle. You know, it's fine. All right, free thinkers. This episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations, and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. Well, Joel, dude, it's been a, a an incredibly enlightening last hour with you, man. Uh, your depth of knowledge into this subject and the world of crypto, cryptocurrency in general is is pretty damn impressive and also essential Thank for you. understanding the future of uh, finance and and personal freedom in general. Uh, like we're <laughs> we're much smarter for listening to this, and I, I and I I gotta say, like back to the NFT thing, I've heard so many people explain that, and I, I have never been able to wrap my head around it. I'm I'm admittedly ignorant in that realm, and now I you know I'm I, I have a much better understanding of it. Uh, it's it's all due to your passion your passion and and dedication to this cause, man. Um, you know, before we wrap up, uh, would you mind do you, or, or could you share with our audience where they could find more about you, like any plugs you want to do, any projects you're currently involved in or uh, how they can dive deeper into the, the crypto revolution with your guidance? Yeah. So the, the easiest thing to do to follow me specifically is follow me on X at the desert links. That's the desert like hot place links like the cat. Um, and then if you want if you want to start actually experimenting with living on crypto, it's pretty easy. So two places to go. One is dash.org and you go to the downloads and download the mobile wallet. In there, there's an option to buy uh, with a credit card. You don't have to put your ID for small amounts. You just have to like name address and then you're free to just buy like a hundred bucks worth or whatever it is. Just try it out. And then if you go to spritz.finance slash dash, Guess what? Try to pay, pick the smallest of your bills, pay it with crypto. Hmm. Rinse and repeat. Just get that. Just try it out. And if it's not for you after a little while, who cares? But I, I think that once you start to experience sovereign money and you realize, oh, this is real. It's not just I'm not playing around here. I can actually pay my rent with this stuff. I think that it'll really change your perspective. Oh, yeah, man. And we're going to put all those links at the podcast description below here for all of our listeners if you're interested in that. Uh, Joel, thanks, man. This has been a great one. Yeah, thank you so much, brother. Always a pleasure. I'll be back anytime you want. <laughs>